So we are here. We're here today with a chief curator at the Hunter Art Museum, Nandini Makrandi. Hello, Nandini. Thank you for being here. Thank you. How are you? Great. It's it's Monday. I've been so excited to talk about this exhibit ever since I stumbled across it um, in the in the before times. Such a strange time. I was looking back at our emails and laughing at uh, the first email uh, in this exchange was March fifth, which was just right yeah. before everything went crazy. I was laughing at that. Right. I'm sorry it took so long to get back to you, oh, but not at it was all. just I was like, what's the point of doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. If the museum's not gonna be open for anyone, but I, I know a, that I mean, yeah. That was a, va- a valid question. And you know, I think that March was a very weird month for everything. It was confusing where to put your attention and energy just at all. Anyway, well, so I, I have you plugged in here with myself and my producer Tyler Mullins. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Are you at home or are you are you working at the, the museum now? I'm at the Hunter because this is the only landline I had access to. Oh, so nice. I wasn't sure if you needed a cell phone or a landline. So. Gotcha. Well, this is great. I appreciate you going going to the trouble. I'm very excited to talk about this uh, exhibit. So this exhibit, is it still going on through August? Is that still the timeline for it? Uh, yes, it opened last August in 2019, and it was supposed to close earlier this summer, but because the museum has been closed, um, we decided to extend it for a few more weeks. So it'll actually close in about a month, August 10th. Okay, wonderful. There's still some time. So this exhibit is called More Than Folk, and uh, I, would, I would love to hear your, um, how do you describe it? So uh, the full title is actually More Than Folk, Celebrating Self-Taught Artists, and The idea was that we have a very small collection, about a dozen uh, pieces of what are called self-taught artists. They have been called folk artists or outsider primitive in the last 50 years to describe people without formal art training. But we had such a small collection, and we have this room in the Hunter Mansion that we use to focus on a portion of our collection for a few months. And so we thought this was a good time to look at these few artists in more detail and let people kind of experience all the work together rather than separately with other pieces in the galleries. We were also this spring hosting an exhibit called Southbound, which were photographs. It, the full title there was Southbound Photographs of and About the New South. And most of the self-taught artists were also from the South. It was looking at photography kind of both stereotypical and not about various issues in the South, and then looking at this other group of artists who were painting their experience living in this area of the country. Gotcha. That's okay. Why we did it at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. So, are are these are the self taught artists in in this current exhibit? Are are they all uh, from this region? Are they all local? They're not. I mean, uh, some are from Louisiana, okay. Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, but they were all. Well, I'm using the. T- term self-taught over and over but that's what they are they don't have formal art training they most of them haven't finished schooling beyond third or fourth grade so generally living in poverty and doing other things to make ends meet for the majority of their lives and then turning to art because it called to them in some form or fashion right you've gotten right to what i mean looking at the some of these images that i'm gonna get the title of the piece wrong but the the whiskey thief (laughs) Is one of my favorites, and then uh, teaching by the highway. Looking at them, I, I got it got me thinking about that same thing. Them doing art because it called to them. It's I'm so fascinated by this idea that these were people who, in the hierarchy of needs, you know, they they had to spend, I imagine, a, a lot of their energy on sort of the fundamentals. 
paying the bills, keeping a roof over their head, taking care of their families. And the fact that they took the time to make this stuff is fascinating to me. Why do you think that happens? Well, I mean, artists have always talked about this need to create, and I don't think it's any different for any of these artists. Most of them, if you read their bios, started later in life, so they're kind of beyond the daily grind of taking care of kids and that kind of thing, and have perhaps had a little more time. But a lot of them simply saw materials available to them and started experimenting and putting things together and, you know, scavenging things from Jimmy Lee Suddeth, who's one of the artists, he was from Alabama. He would use things that were around him, such as mud and tobacco and coffee grounds. And Clementine Hunter, who's actually from Louisiana, worked on a cotton plantation that became an artist colony. So she found all these paints that people would leave behind and started gathering oh, them. Wow. And I'm sure she saw people painting and sculpting and so forth. And so she started doing it. So they all had different calls. Several of them felt that they were being called spiritually. Bessie Harvey, who's from Alcoa, Tennessee, which is near Knoxville, would see visions and felt that the Lord was telling her to do this, to release the spirits, as she would say, in a piece of wood. And she would work with tree stumps and googly eyes. (laughs) That's amazing. So most of them are just using things they've found and really are driven to do this in some form or fashion. That's that's so cool. So what is it like looking at these pieces uh, as a collection? What does it do to you? Well, I think individually, a lot of them are pretty small pieces that we happen to have. Some of them made very large works, and you know, other institutions do have those that I hope people can see. But individually, they were nice, but when you see them all together and you realize that they're kind of drawing from the same inspiration in a lot of ways, because it did tend to be kind of coming from their souls, then they do lend each other power. So when you're in that space, which is small also, you kind of can see threads running throughout the works. You can see how they all struggled with many of the same issues. And then, you know, a lot of us aren't growing up with the same problems or, you know, we're not illiterate. We have a certain comfort in life. Um, But you can see the emotional impact of the pieces because they are coming straight from someone's heart. And then you can apply those same issues to yourself and find things that you identify with. So here's a question about these about these artists. Usually on this podcast, what we, we, we talk to artists who practice their craft in the margin of their lives, right? They have a different day job or they have kids, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're busy. And one of the questions we love to ask is what they feel would be gained and what they feel would be lost if they were able to practice their art like nine to five, if it really did become kind of their full-time job, what, what might be lost? So I'm curious if in, in theory, if all these artists had not been self-taught, but had been classically trained, do you think there's something that would have been lost in their work? There's definitely um, a spontaneity and an instinctive sort of freshness, or some people describe it as childlike, uh, but some of them are very sophisticated pieces, so I don't know about that. But there's definitely a freshness that would probably be missing once you've practiced it over and over or gone through a curriculum that hones the way you think about things. Now, the skill level may have increased as far as how to put something together. Sure. You know, Bessie Harvey's googly eyes tend to fall off a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those things may have improved. But I think there is sometimes a loss when you overthink and you analyze and 
read a lot of critical theory about your work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that those things would be gone. Some of these artists did cross over into the artistic mainstream uh, later in their lives. And I think probably the most famous would be Thornton Dial, because I think in his lifetime, his work became part of the Whitney Biennial. There was a traveling show, possibly organized by the Smithsonian, that traveled, more than one that traveled the country. And I think he was still living when that happened. So he saw some success in the artistic mainstream. And his works, if you didn't know he was a self-taught artist, if you look at some of his pieces, you would think he was definitely drawing from the abstract expressionists like Pollock and Motherwell and so forth. Purvis Young's work, who was from Miami, he found his work was in the Venice Biennale. Bessie Harvey's was in the Whitney Biennale, but after her death. And of course, Grandma Moses, I think her work is very well known Mm. to people. So some of them did find acclaim and success, but often it came after they passed away. Gotcha. So So I work in communications, and so I, Mm. I often think about art forms in what can sometimes be sort of rigid terms of communication, like forms of communication mm-hmm. in, in writing or in music. Well, what's the audience? What's the context? And what's the goal? Right. But I know that talking to some other visual artists, that kind of thinking about a messenger, a message and, and recipient is often not the thought process for painting. Do you think that these artists were, were making these things for someone just for themselves? I think they were making them for themselves. Mm. I'll tell you a story about a piece by Bessie Harvey that I've heard so many stories about. She did a piece called Moses and the Serpent, and she's done more than one version of this. And as far as I know, um, one of the major ones is actually the Knoxville Museum of Art, which is not far from here. And she would see visions, like I said, of God instructing her to make artwork, and she felt it would help other people heal. So she was doing it for herself, but also for others. And about Moses and the Serpent, she was apparently riding in a car on a highway, and she kept telling the person with her that they needed to stop because Moses was in a ditch. And, you know, you could think she's nuts, or (laughs) you could stop, and the person opted to stop, and Bessie got out and ran to the nearby ditch next to the road, and there was this big stick there. And she added this kind of squiggly stick to it and added her eyes and some clothing. And it looks like Moses and the serpent. So she knew somehow in her uh, mind that there was this piece there that she had to get. So that was definitely for herself. And you have to understand a lot of these folks lived really difficult lives. And, you know, Bessie raised 11 children. And I think she either went to third or fourth grade maximum and then she worked yeah and i don't think she had a lot of support on that front Mm. so sometimes when they were creating these things they were for themselves like they were essentially therapeutic and helping them work through things if you look at um, bill trailers i think that's the one you were referring to the three figures yeah stealing liquor the whiskey that's it i love that he has amazing pieces and there was a traveling show this last year um from the smithsonian going around of his work. And we just, again, we have a small piece, but he was born before the Civil War and he was born a slave. And he lived, I think he was born in, let me see, I have a state. He was born in 1853 and he died in 1949. So he lived almost 100 years through a bit of slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, 
segregation, Jim Crow. You know, oh. he lived through all of that. Yeah. And so he he was definitely painting his experience and working through the things that he saw and felt and experienced. That is amazing. It makes me think about um, Oscar Isaac said this about Inside Lewin Davis. He said, the world is squeezing him and this music is the noise that comes out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that puts me in mind of that idea. So this exhibit is still on for a, another month. What are the ways that people can come in and enjoy this exhibit? What's the state of, of the museum right now? So the Hunter will open to members on July 16th right. and then to the public a week after that. And even if you can't get here to see the works in person, they are on our website, which is huntermuseum.org. And if you go to the collections tab and enter in a name of one of these artists, you can see a picture. And then I might recommend the Soul Grown Deep Foundation, which really has great information on so many folk artists, self-taught artists. And it was started some years ago. And it's something that helps these artists who are still living financially and by sharing their work rather than exploiting it. Souls Grown Deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that we just about every episode we wrap by encouraging our listeners to go find someone who's making art in the margins of their lives and check it out. Uh, so that's a, that's a really good place for them to do that. So here's a here's a sort of left field question for you. I read once from a an editor of a literary magazine who said that three weeks after a heavy rainstorm, we get 200 submissions with a title "Rain." <laughs> <laughs> As chief curator at the Hunter Art Museum, how do you think COVID is going to manifest creatively in the coming months and years? Oh, well, it's definitely going to have an impact. Uh, I think (laughs) we're going to see art that represents not only what people had to live through, but, you know, it has very much pointed out the issues of people on the margins. And there was already art addressing that, but I think it's going to grow exponentially. And in the middle of that, you have so many issues around race coming to light more than usual. And so I think it's all mixed together and I can't wait to see how people address it. It's, it's important and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I think it'll range from, you know, people, people are already photographing and in other form and using other artistic forms to document their daily lives and how they've changed. Yeah. And that's just the tip of it. So. I'm yeah. very, very curious to see, see what comes. We'll have to get a couple of years away from it, and, <laughs> right? And yeah. to, to see to see what happens, I think for for everyone to really process. Right. Well, uh, Nedney, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this exhibit. Um, I feel like this exhibit is so timely. I, I just with what you were saying already about this time making the issues of of the marginalized all the more evident. You know, I mean. I, I just feel like this is a really special exhibit. Had not, not even seen well, it. Well, if we didn't have something else we'd already committed to, I think we would have kept it up sure. a few more months because it is from our collection, mm. and then kind of maybe rewritten a few labels to address. We'd already addressed the fact that a lot of these people had challenges to overcome, but we could have been a little more um, direct in the labels. But anyway, anything written four or five months ago, when you look at it now, can feel really strange because the world has changed so much. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, interestingly, our next exhibit, which I think will open August 20th, shipping has also been delayed because of everything. Sure. Is called Depicting the Invisible. And it's actually about uh, trauma from war. It's started with us looking at PTSD in one particular artist's work 
and because she, she was documenting soldiers, mm. and then we started looking at other pieces we had in the collection that were uh, people who painted trauma, and it all happened to be war-related in one form or another. Sure. Um, although there's other kinds of trauma that causes PTSD, of course. So that's what the next one is about, and maybe we'll look at. I think COVID is going to cause kind of a PTSD for people too. So. Sure. Yeah, um, I can only imagine. You know, front you know, first responders, healthcare workers, especially. I mean, mm-hmm. going through such intense times. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's amazing, like how this new context throws everything in a new light. Like you, you know, this this collection that happens to focus on on primarily trauma from war. Now there's this whole new context for it that overlaps with with the particular trauma going on now. It's just incredible how much recontextualizing this this time has done. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I'm choosing artwork, whether it's to purchase or exhibit, I end up taking a very personal view in the sense that. I want something that speaks to me. It's not always what the artist might have started with, but Mm. more often than not, there is a universality to almost every piece. You can always find something that relates back to your life. Yeah, it reminds me of the the, the book Faux by James Kutzia, and he talks about the the specificity of art. Like, without detail, every shipwreck becomes the same shipwreck. And the idea that like the the more particular the work, the more potentially universal it is, right? There's there's always something. Yeah, yeah. People think if it's not by an artist who looks like me or has experienced the same things as me, I won't find anything in it, and that's just not true. So. Yeah, to me, that's that's one of the most exciting and important parts about art. Is it's you know, to me, they're all kind of different versions of bridging that gap between two brains. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I could I could jabber about this stuff for a while with you. Thank you so much again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And after all these months, thank you. For, I'm so glad we got to really uh, got to finally chat. And uh, thank you for having me. I can't, I can't wait to to get back in there. I miss it. A few more days. A few more, a few more days. <laughs> a few more days. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Bye.